You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everyone. Peter Maravellis here, and on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you to this much-anticipated, most happy and auspicious occasion. Tonight, we are celebrating the 85th anniversary of New Directions Publishing. I actually had to kind of get dressed up for this one, so it is a significant and milestone moment. I will begin the proceedings by making a toast, because if we were all here in person, most likely there would be a party at Zoetrope Cafe or Vesuvio's, and uh, so until better times, uh, those of you that have a drink handy, please join me in raising a glass. As you can see, I have made a cocktail for the occasion. So viva to New Directions, a very happy 85th year. We love you dearly, salute. And so now we move on to the proceedings. One cannot say enough about the role New Directions has played in the world of letters, both domestically and internationally. Their name is synonymous with that of the literary life. And tonight, it is especially meaningful to us here because of the longtime friendship between City Lights and New Directions. In much the same way that City Lights as a bookstore is sister stores with Shakespeare and Company in Paris, the City Lights publishing division can in many ways be seen as having a similar relationship to New Directions. Uh, for it was New Directions under its founder, James Laughlin, that first published our founder, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. New Directions titles have been kept in stock at City Lights Bookstore since its inception. Our mutual battles for freedom of speech and of the press are also well-documented. So there's a strong linkage and a kind of a Mobius strip-like interconnectivity between us. So to say a few words about this, I'd like to welcome now Paul Yamazaki. He is City Lights book buyer of long standing, a longtime book trade advocate and mover and shaker in the book world. Paul, welcome. Welcome everybody. Uh, I'm so honored to be here tonight. So I'm gonna be very brief because we have such an outstanding lineup of, of authors reading the works, but the City Lights New Directions relationship actually precedes the founding of City Lights. It begins with the moment that Lawrence Ferlinghetti walks into Kenneth Rexroth's living room for like Kenneth's legendary kind of gatherings. And so we've continued this throughout all these years for the 68 plus years. It's not just James Laughlin and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, it is absolutely now with like kind of the staff at New Directions and the staff at City Lights just kind of were really kind of so parallel in the fact that when we walk through the doors of City Lights or we walk through the doors of New Directions, we seem not to leave. And so I'm so honored to be here with all of you tonight. And um, I am happy to turn this over to Barbara. Thank you, Paul. So St. Paul, St. Peter, all the same. <laughs> you know, you've been such friends and such great old friends. And um, that's true of our poets who we really love on top of publishing them. And um, New Directions is really about the people. It's like my colleagues make the company, James Lachlan made the company, our past colleagues made the company. All the authors we've published all of these years are really what's made it. And so for 85 years, I've been there for a bunch of them and it couldn't be more fun. I love you and um, thank you all. Thanks a lot. Back you, for us. And I, I'd, I'd like to say that, you know, uh, 
Barbara has really kept the flame burning over at New Directions and really just producing year after year. I mean, just some of the most gorgeous and really some of the most important works ever. I mean, and you really only have to look at like, you know, this kind of new line of books. I mean, Nathaniel Mackey's book or Michael Palmer's titles. I mean, just to simply marvel at the production value and just the wonderful content. And, and in the fall, they have, you know, these incredible books coming out from Rosemary Waldrop, from Sylvia Legris, from Will Alexander. So as you can say, the beat goes on. So um, Barbara, it's a great, great honor to, to have you here with us tonight. Also, you know, I'd like to send our big shout out to Mika over at New Directions also, whose efforts have really helped make this evening a reality and whose unwavering enthusiasm about books is just absolutely infectious. So we send our thanks and our great love. Also Declan Spring, you know, um, we send our love to you too. We miss you a great deal. So, um, as we have an especially large grouping tonight, I mean, for the sake of brevity and to keep things running smooth, uh, Forrest is actually gonna be doing more abbreviated biographies of everyone. Um, as is obvious, I mean, this is a very rarefied and truly impressive lineup. Many of these poets and writers hardly need an introduction and to put plainly, they are our nation's treasures. So it is a tremendous honor to have just such an incredible group assembled here under one roof uh, so the auspiciousness of the moment impresses itself upon us. So please do visit the City Lights website, peruse the biographies, and also please do purchase books. So to MC our gala is none other than the marvelous Forrest Gander, an amazing poet and wordsmith, and he will get the evening rolling. Welcome, dear Forrest. Thank you. Thank you, City Lights. Thank you, New Directions. So we're celebrating New Directions books and writers tonight, but those of us who are reading know that it takes remarkable editors to forge the literary history that New Directions continues to make. And on behalf of all of us, I want to express my gratefulness to the New Directions editors and staff. I'm going to start with a poem by Denise Levertov, who I met in Washington DC many years ago from an early book of hers called To Stay Alive, which unfortunately still seems relevant today. It's titled At the Justice Department, November 15, 1969. Brown gas fog, white beneath the street lamps, cut off on three sides, all space filled with our bodies. Bodies that stumble in brown airlessness, whitened in light, a mildew glare, that stumble hand in hand, blinded, retching, wanting it, wanting to be here, the body believing it's dying in its nausea, my head clear in its despair, a kind of joy, knowing this is by no means death, is trivial, an incident, a fragile instant, wanting it, wanting with all my hunger, this anguish, this knowing in the body, the grim odds we're up against, wanting it real, up that bank where gas curled in the ivy, dragging each other up, strangers, brothers and sisters, nothing will do but to taste the bitter taste, no life other apart from. And then I'll read a short poem by Coral Bracho from a book that's coming out. New Directions has published a book of uh, Corral's called Firefly Under the Tongue. And they're doing a new book in next year called It Must Be a Misunderstanding. She's a great Mexican poet. This whole book is focused on Alzheimer's disease. 
observations, the puzzle pieces get lost, but not the look she knows to be hers. The forms, the objects, they merge, they crumble, but a feeling for the ensemble remains. Between moments, between fictions, despite constant fractures, like a threshold, a handhold. And then the last poem that I'll be reading tonight is called Rex Roth's Cabin. And it's, it's indeed a visit I made looking for the cabin that Rex Roth spent several summers in writing uh, here in Northern California. And Rex Roth was so important to New Directions and important to me uh, as a young poet and now. Rex Roth's Cabin. This is from the book Twice Alive, which is just out. On the way to the site of his cabin, his temple, refurbished from the plundered temple of another religion, a religion of fishermen. On the Toque La Lume, a.k.a. Lagunitas, Lagunitas Creek in Devil's Gulch, the path into the forest flagged on either side with orange sticky monkey flowers. Innumerable stubby macho fence lizards rush in bursts ahead of you like heralds. You come up the trail, but half a mile in a single Western skink, its neon blue tail hauled upright behind it, races diagonally cross trail and disappears beneath thimbleberry brambles mantled with shredded spider web. In the epic literature of India, which all those years ago he was reading, lying on this gray wax slab above the ebulliently plashing creek, his head in shade, his lanky body warm, legs crossed in the sun's maple light, breaking through tree limbs pajamaed in moss and stretching awkwardly out, out over the gulch from a steep hillside held in place only by radial green explosions of bracken, maidenhead fern, and a pair of red spiked black caterpillars, which crawl onto his leather boots, set side by side in the rampant pipe vine the caterpillars have been devouring. In all that epic literature of India, no more than three colors are mentioned. See, he is here and not here, not unlike you yourself or the water striders in the creek rowing in punctuated contractions against the drift. What you see in the clear absolute of the water as you stand on some paleo stump at the bank under an electric insect wine distributed perfectly through the canopy, what you see below in the pellucid water is a cluster of six gothic black shadow dots cast onto the stream bed below the thin sand colored bodies of the actual water spiders who are bowed all but invisibly above the tensile surface of the stream. Not here and here. And though you have hiked the dirt path through the forest as he did before you were born, 
to the familiar place, the confluence of two modest falls, to the ground truth, the little clearing where he snored and fried two eggs for breakfast and sat cross-legged on a slab of rock, scribbling into the future that holds you in it. You are only still arriving, still arriving. No trace of the cabin left. And yet his presence is not decomposable. Your mind merges with what is not your mind. Your happiness is radiant. And you squat listening in the tangible density of what is and isn't there as you become your shadow, fluidly contiguous with the shadows of trees. Rosemary Waldrop will be reading from the work of William Bronck and her own work. Her forthcoming book of poems is The Nick of Time, a title she considers more literally than in its colloquial usage as an equivalent for at the last moment. All across Scandinavia and Central Europe and in my heart as well, Waldrop is celebrated as one of America's most significant innovative writers. She is likewise one of our major translators from French and German. So thank you, Forrest. As Forrest said, I'll read from William Bronck from his, one of his very early books, The World, The Worldless, uh, which New Directions published in 1964 in collaboration with San Francisco Review. And it's long out of print, but the poems you can find in the selected prong that is in print. So, The Lawn. Doubtless, it is the complex of many things that makes it. The green, for example. The color alone, fine as that is, so intense a green, yet bland, mild really, no, the green alone is not enough to do it. So it is true that yellow would be impossible. Brown, red, blue, no, it has to be green. But it has to be more than green. There is for this for one thing amongst the many, as though there were one more than another that makes the effect. Looking from slightly above it, we see that, though by blade after blade after blade, it extends a far distance, yet against the fence and the wild field, it does end after all. It comes to an end. And further, in spite of small undulations, it asserts a flat plainness, an assertion it carries off with such bravura. It is as though it defied not the curvature of the globe only, but the curve of space itself, went straight beyond the curve, enough to not follow, and just enough and hung there, overhung it, as though it did. And I read from The Nick of Time, a poem called Doing. Doing. I often don't know what to do, or if I want to. 
dawn has long broken, while I still drag my feet in the mud inside my head, hope for coffee, make a B-flat moan, to prepare the plunge into action, or not. Maybe I want to cast only a passing shadow, feel like my mother's thank God when she took off her corset. But I'm worried there's something I ought to be doing, afraid I'll die without having done anything. Realized myself, you call it, but wouldn't that just mean limited myself? A cement mixer stuck in one motion, even if it helps build a house? So I delude myself into thinking I'm doing something when thinking, or when descending into the night with the cat and the dreams of the cat. You say, no doing without sweat of the face, thorns and thistles, and bringing forth children. Should I look, instead of worrying about fine distinctions that escape my eye, Listen instead of fretting about the size of my ears. But can I cultivate my garden without becoming a cabbage head? The hand gets ready to write. Could we not call this manual labor? Or a stage in the great work of rendering the corporeal cat incorporeal while giving her body to the bodiless word? even if it's from despairing of my own body. You say, my writing is so slow, it's more like gravitational condensation or dust gathering on the cleaning supplies. It's true, I'm dawdling as if I had time to watch the formation of geological layers. So night already seeps through my brittle bones. I certainly don't know what to do to end my days gracefully. But the body dies all through our life, thousands of cells every second. So everything should be very clear. Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. I don't think you have a problem with the size of your ears at all. <laughs> <laughs> Susan Howell um, will be reading the work of HD, another New Directions winner of the prestigious Bollingen Prize. Susan is a phenomenon. With a background in painting and history of collaboration, she's forged a literary style that makes use of documentary materials, marginalia, and collage often marked by striking visual elements. With a fierce vision and a radical mixing of registers, Hal has become one of America's most signal exploratory writers. Her most recent book is Concordance. Well, um, am I supposed to thank you first? No. Uh, um, Rosemary, I had such a complex about my ears when I was a teenager. I can't get over your brain now. <laughs> I used to glue them back with spirit gum because that was the time where you had to have a ponytail and my ears just stuck out at right angles. Anyway, what uh, I, 
am reading poems uh, from HD published by New Directions. And I just want to say that um, HD has been so important to me from my youth to my old age. And um, partly I feel that new, new Directions brought her to me just as they brought Ezra Pound and so many others, but just HD is there with New Directions for me. Uh, so I want to thank from the bottom of my heart, the press that I am a part of, that I write for, and that I am so thrilled to be one of their writers and have been, and I hope always will be, <laughs> we'll see. Anyway, um, so I'm gonna read from um, two, I'm gonna read from two HD poems. One from the very beginning, uh, this is in Collected Poems by, of course, New Directions. And it's um, the second poem in Sea Gardens, which I think is one of her most beautiful poems ever. The Helmsman. Oh, be swift. We have always known you wanted us. We fled inland with our flocks. We pastured them in hollows cut off from the wind and the salt track of the marsh. We worshiped inland. We stepped past wood flowers. We forgot your tang. We brushed wood grass. We wandered from pine hills through oak and scrub oak tangles. We broke hyssa and bramble. We caught flower and new bramble fruit in our hair. We laughed as each branch whipped back. We tore our feet in half-buried rocks and knotted roots and acorn cups. We forgot, we worshiped, we parted green from green. We sought further thickets. We dipped our ankles through leaf mold and earth and wood and wood bank enchanted us and the feel of the clefts in the bark and the slope between tree and tree and a slender path strung field to field and wood to wood and hill to hill and the forest after it. We forgot for a moment tree resin, tree bark, sweat of a torn branch were sweet to the taste. We were enchanted with the fields, the tufts of coarse grass in the shorter grass. We loved all this. But now our boat climbs, hesitates, drops, climbs, hesitates, crawls back, climbs, hesitates, Oh, be swift. We have always known you wanted us. And then this is from the great, the walls do not fall in the first uh, group of poems in trilogy, 
1942, written during the Blitz in London. And I'm reading the last few uh, sections, and again, echoes of today, sadly. But I can't say how much the trilogy meant to me and still does mean as a poet. 39, we have had too much consecration, too little affirmation, too much. But this, this, this has been proved heretical, too little. I know, I feel the meaning that words hide. They are anagrams, cryptograms, little boxes conditioned to hatch butterflies. 40. For example, Osiris equates O sir is or O sire is. Osiris, the star Sirius, relates resurrection myth and resurrection reality through the ages. Plasterer, crude mason, not too well equipped, my thought would cover deplorable gaps in time. Reveal the regrettable chasm, bridge that before and after schism. Before Abraham was, I am. Uncover cankerous growths in present day philosophy in an endeavor to make ready, as it were, the patient for the healer. Correlate faith with faith. Recover the secret of Isis, which is, there was one in the beginning, creator, fosterer, begetter, the same forever in the papyrus swamp, in the Judean meadow. Sirius, what mystery is this? You are seed, corn near the sand, enclosed in black lead plowed land. Sirius, what mystery is this? You are drowned in the river, the spring freshets push open the water gates. Sirius, what mystery is this? where heat breaks and cracks the sand waste. You are a mist of snow, white little flowers. Oh, sire, is this the path over sedge, over dune grass? Silently sledge runners pass. Oh, sire, is this the waste? Unbelievably, sand glistens like ice, cold, cold, drawn to the temple gate. Oh, sire, is this the union at last? Still the walls do not fall. I do not know why. There is zir, hiss, lightning in a not known, unregistered dimension. We are powerless. Dust and powder fill our lungs. Our bodies blunder through doors twisted on hinges and the lintels slant crosswise. We walk continually on thin air that thickens 
to a blind fog, then step swiftly aside. For even the air is undependable, thick where it should be fine, and tenuous where wings separate and open. And the ether is heavier than the floor, and the floor sags like a ship floundering. We know no rule of procedure. We are voyagers, discoverers of the not known, the unrecorded. We have no map. Possibly we will reach heaven. Are you going to read a poem of yours, Susan? Wait a minute. No, Forrest. I thought she was oh, enough. Okay. <laughs> oh, she was great, but so are you. No, no. Well, anyway, <laughs> thanks. Okay, okay. Uh, Nathaniel Tarn will be reading from the works of Charles Olson and Pablo Neruda, whom he knew. Although Tarn, an anthropologist and poet who's been an important translator, editor, and essayist, and who once found himself in his 80s, mind you, paddling his dead guide out of a jungle in New Guinea is a legendary figure. The lyric force of his poetry has never diminished as is made clear by his recent New Directions titles, the latest of which is The Holder Lenai. Well, I wanted a little foreign language in this. And so this is uh, New Directions author that I was madly in love with in Cambridge. ¿Por qué te has muerto para siempre como todos los muertos de la tierra, como todos los muertos que se olvidan en un montón de perros apagados? No te conoce nadie, no, pero yo te canto Yo canto para luego tu perfil y tu gracia, la madurez insigne de tu conocimiento, tu apetencia de muerte y el gusto de su boca, la tristeza que tuvo tu valiente alegría. Tardará mucho tiempo en nacer si es que nace un andaluz tan claro, tan rico de aventura. Yo canto su elegancia con palabras que gimen y recuerdo una brisa triste por los olivos. Duerme, vuela, reposa. También se muere el mar. Well, we were told to read something from a new book, so here goes for the 21st poem of the Hildelinii, which is a love affair with Hildelin 200 years late. And um, he describes here this extraordinary knowledge that he has of the way in which the gods descend. The task to come down from above, bring down, translate, to suffer through an alienation, 
from the pure spirit's mind down to the human heart, since holy ones feel nothing on their own, as there can be no movement in them, being in of themselves perfection. There is no room for any thought, any volition to add to what they are already. Thus they who move through all the skies, the vacant skies, and since they have no feet with which to land, interminably floating through the air, there being not one landing space or limb with which to land, and were thus known as birds of heaven, birds of the paradise. Ergo, they rest down on a human heart. They take great pleasure in such a dream, almost as if they were discovering themselves. And the human heart speaks what it hears from those who land, breaks these words down until a unity emerges from the spirit, not a real one, no, just a sleep, a dream of union. Oh, just the dream perfections landed, brought down to earth, a mind discovering that much has been achieved on earth, whether to benefit a single soul or a whole polity. But in reality, as the dream fades along the push and pull of life, this is illusion, turns out to be illusion. Thus it is recognized, and thus the product must be dreaming, the product born of spirit and of mind. There must be longing here, the reaching out for things dimly imagined as perfection of aim achieved, of heaven reached all the remaining days, so perfect in the light of heaven, in the blue light, he said, in the blue light of those who fall into our hearts and mouths, into our brains, and then go out into the hand, and the hand writes, cannot stop writing. I'll finish with somebody who is immensely important to me, and who blessed me in Yugoslavia many, many years ago. Charles Olson, a short poem from the archeologist of mourning called La Chute, which is my little bit of French in this one. My drum hollowed out through the thin slit carved from the cedar wood, the base I took when the tree was felled. Oh, my lute wrought from the tree's crown, my drum whose lustiness was not to be resisted, my lute from whose pulsations not one could turn away. They are where the dead are. My drum fell where the dead are, who will bring it up, my lute, who will bring it up where it fell in the face of them, where they are, where my lute and drum have fallen. Blessings on New Direction and happy 85th birthday. Into the blue light, beautiful reading.
And next on our docket is Nathaniel Mackey, who will be reading from the works of William Carlos Williams and Robert Duncan, the editor of Hambone, a groundbreaking magazine, and a famous radio host and jazz aficionado, Nate was awarded both the Bollingen and the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prizes. His newest book from New Directions is Double Trio. New Directions has published not only Nate's recent poetry collections, but volume one through three of his dazzling epistolary epic from a broken bottle traces of perfume still emanate. Thank you, Forrest. Very happy to be here. I can remember uh, celebrating the 75th 10 years ago in Poet's House in what had to be one of the hottest hot spells uh, in New York City. I almost died, but here I am. New Directions was my introduction to modern literature when I was in my teens. One of my introductions and one of the biggest. And um, the first New Directions book that I read was uh, Pictures from Bruegel, William Carlos Williams, which um, I read when I was in 10th grade. So that was almost 60 years ago. So I wanted to read something from, from Williams. The second Williams book that I read was Patterson, uh, his big poem, big epic poem. So let me read uh, a passage from Patterson which has uh, remained one of my favorites over the years. While the green bush sways, is whence I draw my breath, swaying all over peace, separate, livens briefly, for the moment, unafraid. Which is to say, though it be poorly said, there is a first wife and a first beauty complex, ovate, the woody sepals standing back under the stress to hold it there. Innate, a flower within a flower whose history within the mind, crouching among the ferny rocks, laughs at the names by which they think to trap it, escapes, never by running, but by lying still. A history that has by its den in the rocks, bowl and fangs, its own cane break whence, half hid, canes and stripes blending, it grins, beauty defied, not for the sake of the encyclopedia. Were we near enough, its stinking breath would fell us. The temple upon the rock is its brother, whose majesty lies in jungles made to spring at the rifle shot of learning to kill and grind those bones. These terrible things they reflect, the snow falling into the water, part upon the rock, part in the dry weeds, and part into the water where it vanishes, its form no longer what it was. The bird alighting that pushes its feet forward to take up the impetus and falls forward nevertheless among the twigs. The weak necked daisy bending to the wind. The sun winding the yellow bindweed about a bush, worms and gnats, life under a stone. 
the pitiful snake with its mosaic skin and frantic tongue, the horse, the bull, the whole den of fracturing thought as it falls tenderly to nothing upon the streets and the absurd dignity of a locomotive hauling freight. Pithy philosophies of daily exits and entrances with books propping up one end of the shaky table. The vague accuracies of events dashing two and two with language which they forever surpass and dawns tangled in darkness. Robert Duncan, um, his work I was introduced uh, not too long after that. It was actually not the, uh, the New Directions edition of Roots and Branches, but uh, it was actually published by Scribner's. And uh, I happened upon this book in a bookstore, turned to its back pages, as was my habit, and was taken by the end of this poem called uh, The Continent. So I'll read the last two sections, five and six. I am so far from you, come up the years so far, a continent looms between. In the far, the Appalachians belong to time before our time, the Urals are a part of. Continents of water and of earth, Gaia, Time's mother too must wear guises, hop on one leg and hide her head in a hut, dance with the rest among the masked guys. It's still Saturday before Easter and love's hero lies in the nest of our time. In Banyal Bufar, the little doll of the Virgin once more meets the sorrowing procession, the black clad walkers before the green of April and looks upon his corpse they carry forth to meet her. Effeminized, the soul is sleeping beauty or Snow White who waits for Sunday's kiss to wake her. Time zone by time zone, across the continent, dawn so comes breaking the shell of flowers, a wave earth makes in turning, a crest against tomorrow breaks. Six, there is only the one time. There is only the one God. There's only the one promise. And from its flame, the margins of the page flare forth. There's only the one page. The rest remains in ashes. There's only the one continent, the one sea, moving in rifts, churning and jamming, drifting feature from feature. And uh, I shall end with one of the shorter poems from Double Trio. This from the second volume, So's Notice, Song of the Andumbulu, 166 and a half, hmm. by which I also want to honor another New Directions author, Kamal Brathwaite, notable among other things for these forms of English that he called Calibanisms, these deformations of Prospero's language. And in the course of writing 
double trio, this non-word, decapitism, kept coming up for me. And, and I guess it's a, a calib calibanization of capitalism. Uh, anyway, it runs through the poem and I wanted to honor Kamau who's, uh, I got an email from uh, some people who were still doing some things with his work. So I wanted to, to read this poem, which begins with that Calibanism. Decapitism stuck to the end of my tongue. What to do but call it names, I thought. It wasn't thought I was thinking I'd have answered had I been asked. Not even thinking, I thought. I sat brooding, tracking a feather's drop, plummet my lush regard. I sat brooding, hen's heat yogic, so bent my hickory legs were, hickory stiff, transcendent, so flexed it was. So it will have been said, absentmindedly rolled off my tongue. Least thought, last thought, I mocked, made believe, I believed. Prophet shot and cast off tread. Prophetry rolled off as well. Jelly-coated pill I bit. Bitness rolled with it, or might as well have, quartet's broken jaw. Change was the law I sat reflecting. Right foot nested on my left inner thigh, left foot pointed straight ahead. I sat, Buddhistic hurdler, musing, mouth open, obscenities, arrayed in a row. I sat, I was thinking thought's province receded, beauty's provocation revoked as our loins contracted. Itamar, Annuncio, all us men. Tantric hoist, I was thinking, thought's adumbration, what ached and what resigned itself, displaced. We sat checking out the yogis and leotards, Aja, Eleanor, Annuncia, Sophia, every womanly wisp under the sun. I dreamt again we were away with no way home, this or that plane waiting, this or that takeoff missed, sweet crease loaded with ore, but to be absconded with, gold we'd have otherwise been. Bent intonation intervened, a reed off away in the distance. Netsonet's name I no sooner gave than was given back, brother bees, wild ox moan. I sat dejected, thoughts appointment missed, disappointed, abscondities eviscerate redoubt. I was thinking thought had yet to begin, thought's far emblem, a star too frail for sight, leotarded crux and curvature, ignition, thoughts do advent, I thought, no such arrival, what comeliness it wore, wore thin. No ideas, but in them, I thought. Cloak and connivance, the lords of that house, abode we abided by. Thank you. Thanks, Nate.
So it's a nice, nice sequencing here. Thoughts, adumbration, and the mention of stars brings us nicely to Mamie Bersenbrugge, who will be reading from the works of Kazuko Shiraishi and also Ezra Pound. Although Mamie's work, like Waldrop's, makes use of collage, it is always immediately recognizable as her own in its distinctive phenomenological probing of modes of awareness that link the human and the non-human. Her most recent book for which she was awarded the 2021 Bollingen Prize, prize also won by Ezra Pound, is a treatise on stars. I'm going to begin with um, a section of Kasuko Shiraishi's poem, Falling Off the Globe. Section two, it's translated by uh, Tumiko Sumura. I'm very happy to celebrate New Directions and City Lights with you all. I didn't want to fall off the globe. I went walking while thinking, I don't want to go walking that far. But after going as far as the edge, I got scared. It's a pity that I have to say goodbye to the globe. The globe too silently, intently stares my way. You aren't really thinking it's right for me to part from you now. At this point, leaving there, I decided to sleep. It's scary. So tonight too, I want to sleep on the warm futon of the globe. My futon at home is like a mother hanging over the globe. Tonight too, the futon said, go to sleep. In my sleep, I thought, the globe is watching over me and smiling in the abyss of my dream. From 2014. This is from Pounds Canto 81. What thou lovest well remains, the rest is dross. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage. Whose world or mine or theirs, or is it of none? First came the scene, then the palpable Elysium, though it were in the halls of hell. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage. What thou lovest well shall not be reft. From thee. The ancestor centaur in his dragon world. Pull down thy vanity. It is not man made courage or made order or made grace. Pull down thy vanity. I say, pull down. Learn of the green world what can be thy place in scaled invention or true artistry. 
Pull down thy vanity. Pluck and pull down. The green cask has outdone your elegance. This is the fourth part of my poem, Lux. And uh, the speaker is describing an ET visitation. Their skies are full of life. She described starlight as scalar without properties of distance or time. Any spirit and matter she calls star walking, remote viewing, meditation, intuition, plants she was shown, and any soul possessing a certain shine she calls starlight. The power of relation came through their extraordinary yellow eyes, she tells me. You're looking into a star, convex, immense, flashing colors through opalescent flowing nuclear fusion. I feel separated from home now. I look up at night sky with great longing. They showed me earth through their eyes. Their oneness extends to us, whereas I'm in the dark. Then it opens onto luminescence. There's a lot of snow. There's a lot of stars, huge, no horizon and very bright. I see the Pleiades. I feel like a wolf looking toward home. Phew, a shooting star just dropped there onto snow. So I go over to it. A crystal has dropped on the snow and there's light, a face in the stone. It's as if I'm looking up through the sky and things are very clear and I'm coming up through the ice. I've been below all this time, and now I see stars. Thanks, Mamie. Uh, Sylvia Legree <clears throat> will be reading from the work of the great Danish poet Inger Christensen. Legree, a Canadian poet who attended just six months of junior high, didn't go to high school at all, and worked full-time lousy jobs for years. It's one of Canada's most important and celebrated writers and winner of the Griffin Prize. Her forthcoming New Directions title, Garden Physic, features a remarkably rich lexical range and an understated concern for the ecological crisis of our time. Often her poems read as spells or shamanistic invocations. <laughs> Thanks, Forrest. I didn't telling too much. That history would be brought up, but that's okay. Um, happy birthday, New Directions. Um, I always feel like I'm in a bit of a, you know, it's, it's like Sesame Street. One of these things does not belong, but um, I, I learned early from New Directions and City Light Books that if you buy your books by the publisher and the little symbols on the spine, they'll lead you in the right direction. 
So I'm going to read from uh, Ingrid Christensen's Alphabet. And um, I love this book. I love reading it out loud and I often do. And it's, it's like an inventory of nature and beauty and all the horrors that human beings are capable of speeding by. And it's, it's like as close as you can get to singing and not singing. Apricot trees exist. Apricot trees exist. Bracken exists and blackberries, blackberries. Bromine exists and hydrogen, hydrogen. Cicadas exist. Chicory, chromium, citrus trees, cicadas exist. Cicadas, cedars, cypresses, the cerebellum. Doves exist. Dreamers and dolls, killers exist and doves and doves, haze, dioxin and days, days exist, days and death and poems exist, poems, days, death. Early fall exists, aftertaste, afterthought, seclusion and angels exist, widows and elk exist, every detail exists, memory, memory's light, afterglow exists, Oaks, elms, juniper, sameness, loneliness exist. Eider ducks, spiders, and vinegar exist. And the future, the future. Fisher bird herons exist with their gray blue arching backs, with their black feathered crests and their bright feathered tails, they exist. In colonies, they exist. In the so-called old world. Fish too exist and ospreys, ptarmigans, falcons, sweetgrass, and the fleeces of sheep. Fig trees and products of fission exist. Errors exist, instrumental, systemic, random. Remote control exists and birds. And fruit trees exist, fruit there in the orchard where apricot trees exist. Apricot trees exist in countries whose warmth will call forth the exact color of apricots in the flesh. So I, I emailed Nika earlier to say that I wanted to read the whole thing, but I would restrain myself. And I should say that two lines from Ingrid Christensen's alphabet open my book, Garden Physic. And I'm just gonna read a short bit. And this is the second part of a longer poem, which is called um, Gazetteer of the Backyard in which Pedanius Dioscorides takes stock. Part two, a perennial saga. Before the blue lake bush beans, the bolero hybrid carrots, the maestro peas, the ruby queen beets. Gardens over long gone lakes, over fluvial plains, over lacustrine plains, aeolian or windworked, over pitted outwash plains, over mixed gnaw and depression. Gardens of orthic dark brown soil, Calcareous dark brown, eluviated dark brown, humic glacials. Soils moderately fine to fine textured, moderately calcareous, usually saline. Clay glacial lacustrine deposits, unsorted glacial till. Gardens of nearly level topography, of topography gently sloping or roughly undulating, moderately sloping or gently rolling, strongly sloping or moderately rolling, steeply sloping or strongly rolling. Gardens with perennials that mimic black coral branching like a tree. 
that mimic saffron-colored laminated rocks, with rows that mimic sea froth, salt flowers, a river with a crust of bi-colored day lily, gardens with the temperament of pumice stone that stops boiling wine boiling, of alkaline earth that restrains the tongue, with the constitution of whetstone that mollifies major and minor organs with the antiseptic nature of adamantine spar. Gardens of unambiguous moss, opportunistic moss, outbreaks of rock break, bear's bed, robin's eye. Gardens of anonymous moss and closeted moss, Iceland moss a lichen that passes as a moss, moss that conquers lassitude, moss that comforts the heart. The gardens of unwanted plants and persistence, lamb's quarters, shepherd's purse, purse lane, the argumentative and self-important gardens, prostrate, not weed, supercilious, stinkweed, black, medic. Fantastic. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you. Um, and we should shout out for Susan Nyad. Imagine trying to translate an abecedarian from Danish into English and how incredibly that she rendered that, the translator of Inger Christensen. So we're coming down to our last three readers. And we'll start with Michael Palmer, who's going to be reading from the work of Robert Creeley. Like Robert Creeley, Michael Palmer has been associated with a number of seminal literary groups, including the Robert Duncan lineage of the San Francisco Renaissance and the early language poets. But like Creeley, he has remained insistently singular and exquisitely lyrical. His newest book is Little Elegies for Sister Satan, a multifaceted exigent mourning for our epic. Thank you, Forrest. Well, I think of Creeley in, uh, maybe it was 1970, uh, an earlier celebration of New Directions at Brown University. And um, Bob and I were asked to read on the opening night. And uh, the first thing Bob said as he was introduced was, it's the company. And indeed, it's almost impossible uh, to say what New Directions has meant in my life. Um, well, long before I was published by New Directions, to, to have, first of all, the modernists brought to me, Williams, Pound, HD, uh, many others. And then to have the generation ahead of me, Robert Duncan, Creeley, picked up by New Directions. I, uh, hard even to uh, um, render appreciation that's fitting. And now, we have Barbara and Mike and others doing such an extraordinary job of helping literature, poetry to survive and new directions to survive in uh, a difficult, often anti-intellectual, anti-artistic climate. And uh, so my appreciation is profound for what it's given. And then there's a third group, which are my contemporaries, Suki, Nate, uh, Inger, uh, who I saw often in Europe, uh, Kamal Brathwaite, equally important. So I have, as since first finding New Directions as a, almost a child, I must have been a weird child, but I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that younger than New Directions, as it turns out. Anyway, 
uh, it's been part of my life. So hail to that. Um, it was Bob, I decided to read Bob Creeley uh, because uh, I first met him in 1963. And um, I read some very early poems, which I hope don't exist, but he generously said to me, uh, welcome to the Valley of Sorrows. <laughs> so <laughs> it, was a, it was a minatory comment, but it was appropriate. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I steeled myself for what would be the life of the poet, such as it is. And um, I will read a couple of poems, just because they're brief, of Bob's, and then one of mine uh, from the, the, the poems of Bob's were from the Vancouver Poetry Conference where I first heard him read live uh, in 1963. And Bob led a complicated emotional life and uh, shared it with us, uh, the ups and the downs of it most generously. And in the midst of the reading, at, at, in Vancouver at the, at the University of British Columbia at his Bob's reading, there was a power failure. And I'm going to uh, read the poem he was reading. I'll first read this poem, When the Power Failure Happened. And then I will read one more poem of Bob's, When the Candles Came On. So uh, these are both famous poems of Bob's. I Know a Man. This was the one where as he reaches this, this, this line, the power goes out, thus convincing me uh, of the power of poetry. As I said to my friend, because I am always talking, John, I said, which was not his name, the darkness surrounds us, bang, out go the lights. What can we <laughs> do against it? Or else shall we and why not by a goddamn big car Drive, he said, for Christ's sake, look out where you're going. Then by candlelight, a form of women, more darkness. I have come far enough from where I was not before to have seen the things looking in at me through the open door and have walked tonight by myself to see the moonlight and see it as trees and shapes more fearful because I feared what I did not know, but have wanted to know. My face is my own, I thought, but you have seen it turn into a thousand years. I watched you cry. I could not touch you. I wanted very much to touch you, but could not. If it is dark when this is given to you, have care for its content when the moon shines. My face is my own. My hands are my own, my mouth is my own, but I am not. Moon, moon, when you leave me alone, all the darkness is an utter blackness, a pit of fear, a stench, hands unreasonable, never to touch. But I love you. Do you love me? What to say when you see me? It was soon after that, in 63 that I decided I had better stop reading Creeley for a while, lest I uh, start echoing him. And then and our, our, our personalities at that point were somewhat similar. Uh, maybe they still are, I don't know. 
but I, I, I vowed not to be reading Bob for, I don't know, a year or two more, so, so that it wouldn't be coming through my pen as an imit, uh, a cheap imitation. Anyway, here's a poem from uh, during the lockdown, the COVID lockdown, uh, I started writing a series of poems called Midnights. And I wrote them very late in the evening at a wonderful moment of silence in the darkness. Uh, and uh, the first 33 of them, Dante-like number, I was surprised to find out, uh, are the final section of my new book from New Directions. So here's one of them. It's called Midnight's Corona Song. Midnight's Corona Song. So night was a dark bloom that grew steadily, steadily darker and wider. It muffled our sounds, our whispers and cries. The exit signs led us in circles for countless dark hours until we reached the one that said no exit. Did we believe it? Do we believe it still? Did we lie still in that dark bloom that muffled all sound, whether soft or shrill, all those rippling notes rising from the sleeper's throat, the singer's taut throat, the lover's silken throat? Did we believe the summer snows when they suddenly came and then the winter footsteps left by night in them? Believe that time's dark bloom, dark wound, would keep its muffled word in a translated world ministered by chance, the thing as it is, both quiet and loud. Will we find our way out? Thank you. Thank you, Michael. <clears throat> will Alexander will be reading from Octavio Paz with a parallel life as a musician and playwright, Will taps into the widest, wildest, and most lush lexical range of any poet since Hugh McDiarmid. The theme of diaspora is central to many of his books, including the Sri Lankan Luxodrome and his forthcoming collection, Refractive Africa. An internationalist in his perspectives, Will has been the winner of the Jackson Poetry Prize and an American Book Award. Will. Thank you for having me. And uh, can you hear me? And uh, I will yeah. be uh, reading from um, Octavio Paz and myself, Refractive Africa, but the uh, Octavio Paz section has a little background uh, note here. I went to a reading of Octavio Paz here in Los Angeles, and he happened to be reading at a school, Cal State uh, Los Angeles. And for some reason, I got a bit turned around and I was, I was the last person to get into the uh, auditorium. And it was interesting because we, we were searching for a seat and I did find one and it was dark. That's why it was a little difficult. And when the lights went up, it's interesting, uh, Marie Jose was sitting next to me, Marie, Marie Jose Paz. And uh, during the reading, of course, Paz read uh, a fable for Joanne Miro. A Fable of Joanne Monroe, which was spectacular for me and was and remains. And I'll be reading from uh, the volume translated by Elliot Weinberger. And uh, it's just called A Fable of Joanne Monroe. I'll read a portion of it. 
Blue was immobilized between red and black. The wind came and went over the page of the plains, lighting small fires, wallowing in the ashes. Went off with its city, shouting on the corners. The wind came and went, opening and closing windows and doors, came and went through the twilight corridors of the skull. The wind in a scrawl with ink-stained hands wrote and erased what it had written on the wall of the day. The sun was no more than an omen of the color yellow, a hint of feathers, a cock's future crow. The snow had gone astray, the sea had lost its speech and was a wandering murmur, a few vowels in search of a word. Blue was immobilized, no one saw it, no one heard. Red was a blind man, black a deaf mute. The wind came and went asking, where are you going, Joanne Miro? He had been here from the beginning, but the wind hadn't seen him. Immobilized between blue and red, black and yellow. Miro was a transparent mirage, a mirage with seven hands, seven hands in the form of ears to hear the seven colors, seven hands in the form of feet to climb the seven steps of the rainbow, seven hands in the form of roots to be everywhere and in Barcelona at the same time. Miro was a mirage with seven hands. With the first hand, he beat the drum of the moon. With the second, he scattered birds in the garden of the wind. With the third, he rattled the dice cap of the stars. With the fourth, he wrote the legend of the centuries of snails. With the fifth, he planted islands in the chest of green. With the sixth, he created a woman by mixing night and water, music and electricity. With the seventh, he erased everything he had made and started over again. The poem travels much further, but we have a constrained amount of time. And I wanted to just parallel that with uh, the opening work I've done with the um, Refractive Africa. And this is, to a, this is my version, not my version of, of his homage to Moreau, but this is my sculpting a, a work on uh, Amos Tutuola, and it's entitled Based on the Bush of Ghosts. Based on the Bush of Ghosts for Amos Tutuola. Having risen above dubious salt infernos, an absence of ruses in your blood, never extended into doctrinal edicts. You, Tutuwala, compatible with cosmic infra forces, with wheat that blazes, rife with its own combustible plane. You, all while living, roam the anarchic, as ozone, as region, as dark interior hollow of strife. You wandered through oneric vacuums, what some would call anarchic jubilation, seemingly blinded, seemingly spun by discomfort, by winds which sprang up and menaced, by forces which summoned themselves through attrition, 
Amos, you are not a corpse sculpted out of ash, but vehicular anonymity as voyage, as physiology summoned by unnameable tension. This remains your creed, your living example, your ability to singe, to stumble as haze through incitement, to invade as sigil through raucous tipping points. These are forces you continue to breed, being powerful towers of smoke, which remain exhaust of sands, squared at the root by corroborated cinder, by corrupted intensification. So that as births occur, they immediately exhaust old bulletins of calcium, and all of them claim extrinsic home and hearth, being torrents reversed and unleashed as burning grams as geometric sorcery, which equate themselves with the charisma of slippage. And this charisma tutuola converges upon extremes as if a flare from perfect hydrogen had been squared and left askew, issuing strictly numbered meridians. That's, that's part of it. I wanted to converge all these forces together as much as possible because, you know, Paz and Tutuola both went through interesting odysseys, you know, ups and downs and all of these parallel situations. Not, not, an, easy, not an easy existence. It wasn't a cookie cutter situation. So I was understanding all of that as part of the poetic odyssey, that nothing is a straight line. Everything is it's circular and, 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 and jammed and all, all, all of the above. But the thing I wanted to emphasize was the character of the, the writer being able to continue to forge through darkness. There's an interesting um, small story on Paz. I wouldn't say a small story, but I can't think of the gentleman's name. It's, it's a, um, a book of, of, of biographies of Che Guevara and other people. And uh, I think I'll think of it when I get off of this screen here, but um, it's a book about Paz's situation of going through these ambiguities and uh, understanding these ambiguities was something that strengthened me and as well as Tutuola because Tutuola and himself had critics, you know, of his English, which was not supposed to be pure enough. But we found out that Africa has over 2,000 languages. So what Tutuola was doing was siphoning off that indigenous spirit into his language. And it seems that Paz was doing the same thing with his work. And both of them went through some hard patches. I, I took sustenance from that and hence, hence, hence my, my uh, appreciation and, and my ability to invoke their spirits. So I, I thank you for this opportunity and happy, happy birthday to New Directions and, you know, great being with City Lights as well and all you great spirits that I'm reading with. Thank you. Woohoo! <laughs> happy birthday, New Directions. So our last reader batting cleanup is Elliot Weinberger, who is going to be reading from the work of Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Kenneth Rexroth. Elliot's is internationally recognized as America's most stimulating literary essayist. Although his writing, as in his most recent book, Angels and Saints, is so inventive and poetic, it can't really be fixed by genre. Also well known as a translator and editor, Weinberger is the first US writer awarded the Order of the Aztec Eagle in a ceremony 
indeed, that I attended and will not forget. This year, he won the Schocken Bremenhaven Citizens Prize for Literature for a writer who sets an example against injustice and violence. Elliot. Thank you, Forrest. Am I on? Yes. 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 I don't see myself, but I uh, I see you, Michael. <laughs> Whenever I speak, I see you, Michael. I don't know. What is this? <laughs> this is very strange. <laughs> um, so it's somewhat disconcerting. Is this what should be happening? We yeah? see you, Elliot. You yeah. see me? Oh, okay. When I speak, I only see Michael, but this is true of my life in general. Um, okay, thank you. It's it's very moving in this in this long isolation to um, to see uh, so many old friends, and uh, and wonderful to uh, to hear Will uh, reading Paz like that. So I think there's a few words in the translation I should change now. I wanted to, uh, since we're in uh, virtual San Francisco, I wanted to pay tribute to uh, three of the city's monuments who were also pillars of New Directions, George Oppen, Kenneth Rexroth, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti. The fourth monument pillar, uh, Robert Duncan, has already been presented by Nate, and the fifth monument pillar, Michael Palmer, who's luckily with us. So uh, I'll start. And then also we're, uh, here on the East Coast, we're, we're deep into the American night. So I thought that I would read three short poems that take place under the moon and stars. The first is Oppen from This in Which. The forms of love part in the fields all night so many years ago. We saw a lake beside us when the moon rose. I remember leaving that ancient car together. I remember standing in the white grass beside it. We groped our way together downhill in the bright, incredible light, beginning to wonder whether it could be lake or fog we saw, our heads ringing under the stars. We walked to where it would have wet our feet had it been water. Second poem is Rex Roth from the, uh, uh, the Phoenix and the Tortoise, and uh, possibly written in the cabin that Forrest was writing about and paid homage to. Another spring. The seasons revolve and the years change with no assistance or supervision. The moon, without taking thought, moves at its cycle, full, crescent, and full. The white moon enters the heart of the river. The air is drugged with azalea blossoms. Deep in the night, a pine cone falls. Our campfire dies out in the empty mountains. The sharp stars flicker in the tremulous branches. The lake is black, bottomless in the crystalline night. High in the sky, the northern crown is cut in half 
by the dim summit of a snow peak. O oh, heart, heart, so singularly intransigent and corruptible. Here we lie entranced by the starlit water and moments that should each last forever slide unconsciously by us like water. And finally, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who, uh, as most of you know, jo joined the ancestors a few months ago at age 101 and uh, was, of course, the, the founder and, and, and guiding light of, of our host, City Lights. This is from his book, European Transitions and Translations, and recently reprinted in a book with the, the matchless title, Ferlinghetti's Greatest Poems. Can't beat that. The Rebels. Star-stricken still, we lie under them in dome of night as they wheel about in their revolutions, forming and reforming Oh, not for us, their splendiferous phosphor fabrications. Ah, the wheelwright of it, whoever he or she or it, chief fabricator of the night of it, of the night to set in this cut glass diamond diagram. Upstairs in the lighted attic, under the burning eaves of time, lamps hung out to guide far more far-out voyagers than ourselves. Still antic stars shoot out, burst out, errant rebels even there in the perfect pattern of some utopia, shooting up, tearing the silver web of perfect symmetry. As in a palm of hand, the perfect plan of line of life and heart and head struck across of a sudden by one cataclysmic tear. Yet all not asunder, all not lost to darkness, all held together still at some still center, even now in the almost incendiary dawn, as still another rebel burning bright strikes its match upon our night. Thank you, and uh, all hail New Directions and City Lights, the, the twin temples of literature. Thanks, Elliot. Before everyone goes, we have a message from our sponsor. Well, not from our sponsor, but from our publisher and editor, Barbara Epler. Hi, I'm back again. I wanted to just say, I feel so moved by all you writers like incredible, all our old friends at City Lights. And you know, I keep thinking this thing Dolly Parton said that you can't make old friends, but it's really true. I've been thinking about that in various contexts. Uh -huh. I also wanted to say that I feel really proud of the list. And I just wanna say that the person with the, our poetry list after James Lachlan, who's most responsible, it's the whole gang, but it's our colleague, Jeffrey Yang. And I hope he'll say something. Come on, Jeffrey, lean in. Thank you. Um, thanks, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks um, 
for that. That's really nice, but it's everyone in the office and the press. Um, no, I'm just in awe of these readers and and poets and and, and seeing seeing them here. And no, I'm really moved as well. I mean, uh, all these stories, uh, all the people and finding, I mean, I found pause. That was my first indie book, <laughs> listening, uh, the, listening to the rain, the first poem. And so it's, it's amazing to, to, uh, to just be a part of this history and, and trying to, to work on these books with everyone else too. And Declan and, and Barbara and Tynan and Mika and, everyone in the office <laughs> and Lori's here too. And so I just want to thank everybody too. So, and thanks City Lights. Thank you City Lights. <laughs> thank you Peter. Thank you audience. Thank you readers. Now we're all meeting at Elliot's for a party. <laughs> Grandpa. We're there. And can I bum a cigarette? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I would just like to say on the behalf of City Lights, thank you all so much. Forrest, you did an amazing job. And City Lights could not be City Lights without new directions. And I couldn't be the person that I am without all of you. And thank you so much for being here for us. And I'm bringing my hammock to 14th Street and you're going to be stuck with me for a while. We're coming. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is an amazing, amazing evening. Love you all. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.